challenge the culture of consumerism, challenge how you hang out with your friends, you know, challenge the notion of when you buy, set a limit for yourself and say, I'm going to buy 30 items this year. That's it. When I'm done, I'm done and do that. But challenge this system at whatever intersection you can operate from, because obviously not everyone's going to be able to like quit fast fashion tomorrow, but I think a good amount of us probably can. Hello, I'm Emily Bellet, founder of Vespod and author of You're Not Broke, You're Pre-Rich, and you're listening to The Wallet. Today, I invited the inspiring Aja Barber onto the show. Aja Barber is a writer, fashion consultant, holding those in power to account by campaigning for sustainable, inclusive fashion industry that doesn't exploit people or the planet. She's the author of must-read book Consumed, The Need for Collective Change, Colonialism, Climate Change, and Consumerism. I personally have been trying to reduce my consumption over the past few years, recycle, reuse, and also repair. But this book is an eye-opener, and it's also a trigger to do better with our money, to stop consuming too much, by understanding what is the profound impact on the planet and on our mindset. It's not about quitting everything, but just doing better. Today on The Wallet, we're having a very candid conversation. We discuss the deep-rooted and complex relationship with consumerism within our culture, why we feel the impulse to spend, and why we can't stop consuming. Where we spend our money is powerful. And when we consume fast fashion, we should consider who and what are we supporting. So Aja shares how we can all approach our purchases as citizens and not just consumers. Aja tells me about our journey of moving away from overconsumption, what she asks herself before she purchases anything, and her tips for saving money, which allows her to avoid cheap disposable items and opt for a sustainable equivalent. I'd also just like to say a quick thank you to our sponsor, Pension B. Pension B has helped over 500,000 customers be pension confident. It enables savers to take control of their finances by helping them transfer their old pensions together into one simple online plan. With Pension B, you can manage your pension like you manage your bank account, check your real-time balance, your projected retirement income, and set up contributions and withdrawals all from the palm of your hand. Plus, you'll get human support from your very own UK-based account manager, or as Pension B calls them, Big Keeper. You can sign up to Pension B today with the names of your old pension providers in just five minutes, and if you're self-employed, you can open a pension from scratch. As always with investment, your capital is at risk. Please note that we are not financial advisors. The articles and information made available on Vespod and this podcast are provided for information and educational purposes only and do not constitute financial advice. Hello, Aja. Hi, thank you for having me. It's so nice to see you today. Also, because I've just finished your book. I finished it yesterday, Consumed. And I'm now in shock and I'm like, wow, you know, we need to review our consumer habits. We have so much work to do. So I'm so excited to have you here on the wallet today. But for those who don't know you, can I ask you to, uh, to please introduce yourself? Yeah. So my name is Asha Barber. I am a writer and author and I have an Instagram account where I basically serve as like the little angel on your shoulder that tells you not to buy that thing that Instagram is telling you you desperately need because this is a system that's meant to trap you in it and to make you feel like you have to buy things and all that buying isn't actually good for us it's not good for the people making the things and it's not good for our planet and so that's what my book is about me figuring out all of these systems and 
coming to this place where I'm at today. Yeah, and I I love that you know you have such a big following on on Instagram, and that's where people spend their time looking for new things to buy, and where we you know bombarded by messages on you know buy more, buy more. Yeah, you need that. Oh my goodness, you really like this person, and you like their life, and you're never going to have a life like theirs, but you can buy the same dress that they own. Won't look the same on you though. Yeah, no, I, I know it's 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 crazy, and and you're tempted, and even if you know you think no, I'm not comparing myself to others. You always do that and you always, you know, you have this temptation. I try and always remind myself that like comparison is really the thief of joy. And I try and go through social media with that lens, but it's hard. It's hard. And it's tempting, especially when you're tired, it's late at night and you and you keep browsing. But what led you on to um, so writing a book, writing consumed, writing about the, you know, fashion industry and sustainability? I mean, what's the what's the story behind it? That's the you know, the beginning, obviously, of, of the book. Uh, but I guess it it was maybe also quite a learning curve for you yeah. to understand everything. So where, you know, where does it come, come from? So I would say that, like, I always wanted to be in the fashion industry, but because of, like, systemic, like, oppressions that we know show up in, like, a lot of industries, it, I wasn't going to be, like, a squad of fashion. Like, it just wasn't how it was going to go. But I think sometimes when you're like not let into certain rooms, you're like looking in and you're like a little bit jealous, but then you start to actually be like hypercritical, possibly because you're not invited into that space. But from those critiques, you actually are like, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's bad stuff going on here. There is bad stuff. So for me, I just always wanted to be within, you know, a certain area of the fashion industry, writing or designing. And I felt like there was this structural red tape and barriers. And then I began to realize that my experience within the fashion industry is actually like a microcosm. And if you were to zoom out and look at the production and manufacturing, there's more red tape there. And it's just, I was writing about systemic issues like racism and feminism and colonialism all in one section of the internet, but then every now and then I write about fashion still because I still was interested. And what happened is I started to really blend all of this together because it used to be column A and column B. And I was like, no, wait, if you actually apply this to column A, it works. If you apply that to column A, it works. And so basically my Instagram platform became a place where I started to heavily critique the industry. And I think part of why like critiques of the industry don't happen is because when you're within the industry, there are, you know, there's, there's an idea that like retribution could happen. I think a lot of people that work within the industry, they know, everybody knows how the sausage is made, but nobody wants to speak up because maybe that will harm you in your next job. You know, maybe you won't get that next job. You hear about like fashion industry insiders, being barred from fashion shows and stuff. And you know what? I just don't fucking care because I don't want any of that stuff. I really don't. I don't fucking care. Like, oh, you're not going to invite me to the party you never invited me to anyways. Oh, no. Oh, my goodness. I won't get a goodie bag, which I have to trade my soul for. Oh, no. So I do feel like the fashion industry works off of like, you want to be here. You want to be in this room. And I simply don't anymore. And I, I, I want the fashion industry to do right because I love the beautiful sides of the industry, the inspiration and the craft and the, and the art and just all the wonderful things 
that can come from a thriving fashion industry, but the current iteration of the fashion industry, I think, should be burnt to the ground. Let's rebuild. So I have no problem saying the thing because I'm not looking to anyone to hire me for anything. No, I love that. And um, I think in, in the book, and, and I like how you, you started the book, which is really like, you know, what are, what are the facts? What, what can we learn about the fashion industry? And I actually learned a lot. I mean, I'm not a, you know, at Vespod, we talk a lot about, you know, limiting your consumption, be more ethical, be more impactful, you know, the impact on your overall finances for the long term. But you go even deeper there and, and you know, you, you go back to really like the, the roots of, you know, consumerism, the history of the textile industry, you know, brokered slavery, racism, today's like wealth inequality. We talk about slavery so removed from today's systems. Like, and I think we do that so that no one has to feel bad about it. But the truth is like slavery, chattel slavery, like got the fashion industry to a place where things could be sped up exponentially. Like it was part of this puzzle that we're all in. And we talk about cotton so removed from the fashion industry, but that's what it was was for, you know? So, yeah. And that's important. We, we, we reconnect with that. Otherwise, we, we can't understand, like, I think we can understand the impact on the planet, but we can't understand, like, you know, the, the social impact and the impact on, like, you know, inequalities. If we're talking about just the impact on the planet, I learned from one of the slow factory courses that weren't, wasn't my own, but I learned that colonialism meant migration of flora and plants. And so like certain strains of cotton aren't native to North America. They were literally brought to be harvested in that area. That changes the entire ecosystem of our planet, which is part of why we're in this problem that changes like, you know, what grows locally. And our planet is a, it's a delicate thing. I mean, it's, it can take a lot, but like things hang on a pretty delicate balance. And it's amazing and extraordinary that we're all here today. Like that had to, it was a delicate procedure that got humanity to where it is. And all it takes is us screwing up for 75 years. And we've, we've almost overturn the apple cart, you know? So how is the production model, first of all, like of, of fast fashion, if we focus on, you know, fast fashion, destroying the, the planet? Yeah. So fast fashion runs on overproduction. The one thing that brands never want to like acknowledge is like how much they produce when like, I think it's like 25% of all the clothing that's produced won't even be sold. And like the fashion industry produces a hundred billion garments a year. And now's the time to remind people on this planet, we have 7.9 billion humans. So the fashion industry is punching way above the weight of humanity. But if we want to even like stretch that out more, 50% of the planet lives on $5 and 50 cents a day and cannot afford to buy into a system of fast fashion. So it's actually one portion of the planet who's doing it. But the resources which are being used to maintain this system are resources that all of us should have access to. And that's not the reality. And if we really want to get meta with it, like the global South, if, you know, people go, oh, well, you know, colonialism wasn't such a bad thing. You know, what would these people do without these jobs? But people need to understand that uh, British colonialism was the prime goal of it was to upset the uh, fabric industry in India. And India was a thriving fabric manufacturer at the time. And so I would argue that without colonialism, India would probably still be a thriving fabric manufacturer. So 
we just need to look at all of these cycles and see them for what they really are instead of seeing them for the ways in which we wish to participate in them. Because the thing about consumption is that it loops us in from a very young age. From the minute you're born, the world is basically like, here, kid, here's a credit card, you know, and I think it's time for us to pick these things apart because it is not good for us. I mean, I remember even being suspicious of that sort of stuff when I was like a college student. Like I remember and, and Barack Obama actually passed some laws that they can't do this anymore. But when I was a college student, the first year, like the first week, they would ply you with credit cards, anything. Oh, you sign up for a credit card, you get a water bottle. Oh, you know, the fraternity with like the boys that are mediocre, cute, not super hot, but you know, whatever. They go around door to door and be like signing people, signing up girls for credit cards. And like, that is a part of the system because we all know that like 18 year olds, the human brain doesn't actually reach full maturity until 24. And 18 year olds, like we're doing a disservice to these young people. We're not teaching people money management skills in school. That's something that I think should be taught. So it's like this person with no money management skills, no idea of how the world works. And you're going to like, be like, Hey kid, want some debt? Want to buy all these things? You can have all this debt. Ooh, we'll make debt enticing. And today how we see that is how it shows up in like the buy now, pay later apps. Like, I think that's the new version of making debt aspirational. Yeah, we are, we're, Really having these conversations, yeah. So we'll we'll talk about like money and, and your sort of money habits and maybe how you've 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 changed over the years. But just one thing on, on fast fashion also is is actually we have to realize that you know the way we spend money is quite powerful. So when we start start buying from fast fashion, we have to think about where is the money actually going? Who are we supporting? So can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, I would say you have more impact on this system, taking away your money and giving it to someone else. Because one thing we have to realize is that all these bad things that we hear about when we see it buried in the news, when we hear about the disasters, when we hear about the things that are happening, all of these big brands that are manufacturing in countries in the global South know what they're doing. They know it. Don't believe them. They know it. They're not going overseas to be altruistic and to bring jobs to the people. They're going overseas because they can exploit people, because there's loopholes, because if a factory collapses on people, you can say you didn't know. But that's been happening enough to the point where everybody knows that it's happening, which means that they should definitely know. And they do. They play the fool. And people need to understand that as long as those of us that can afford to buy into the system and probably can afford to make some changes, continue to do so, nothing will change. That is the reality. Like, and, you know, I am lower middle class. I come from a working class family in the U S and I talk about that in the book, but I was that consumer. I was the minute I had any disposable income, it went straight into the pockets of a few stores. And there was one year where I added up my receipts and I hadn't made enough money where I felt like I could move out of my parents' basement, but I managed to give like a 10th of the money that I had made to one store in particular. And I was mad at myself for that. But then I had to really sit with myself and get a grip. Like, yeah, I'm not super rich, but this whole thing with like 
fast fashion consumers buying 68 items of clothing a year. Hi, that was me. I've done that. It was time for me to get very realistic about how much I was spending, how I was spending, who I was giving my money to. And, you know, when I would look at like the sustainable brands that I now buy from and purchase from and go, oh, I can't afford that. I needed to start quantifying and being like, well, if I stop going to this store two times a month and I did that for three months, I could actually just afford this dress, to be honest, because each time I go into that store, I'm averaging usually about $100 a month, sometimes more. And if I just saved for three months, I'd have $300 that I could spend on something that I feel really, really good about. So actually, maybe I can do that. Maybe I'm not the poor person in this equation. Like on paper, yes, I was below the poverty line in America as an earner. However, I also had a bunch of safety nets. I had parents that were like, sure, you can live in the basement. It might make all of us feel a bit like we're going mad, but you can still do it. You know, like I had those safety nets. I had parents where I wasn't going to starve. You know, like they would make sure that there was a way, even if it made us all miserable, but I could do that. And I, I need it to sort of be like, when it comes to like poverty, I'm not poor. And we do this thing in our society where nobody wants to be poor until it's time to justify participating in a system that, you know, isn't good for other people. Then suddenly everybody's poor, except that's not true. Let's stop. It's, it's a bit weird, you know? No, I agree with you, but it's 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 such a big conversation of you know around class also maybe and, and privilege. So saying you know I'm I don't have enough money, so I have to buy you know fast fashion and I can't afford a more sustainable option. And you describe how you you shifted your your mindset, but why? You know, why do we have to spend? Why can't we stop consuming? Why are we, you know, on Instagram looking at, you know, what's what's fashionable these days? Like, you know, I like to wear these things and these girls are wearing that. And Because it's our culture. It's literally like put into our heads from the minute we like <laughs> yeah. slide out of the womb. Like, honestly, it's just like, here, baby, you want a credit card? Let's show you a film. Here's a really great film that's like a cult classic. And there's a character that everybody thinks is like, uh, she's not that cute. And then we like get her all this clothing and she has a makeover, tons of shopping. Now everyone treats her differently. How many films can you name that do that? That is cementing ideas in our culture. And like for impressionable minds, it works. It totally does. And, you know, even when we're older, I think we have to go back and be like, now, why do I buy so much stuff? Because I had to do that for myself, you know? And it's one of those things where I wouldn't feel like I'm healed from it. I'm just aware of it. Like when it was time for like my book release party, it was like, oh, I should go buy a new dress. And then I thought about it and I thought that's absolutely ridiculous, Saja. You do not need a new dress to go party with your friends. This is ridiculous. You have a wardrobe with like so many amazing designers because you get the pleasure of like knowing some of these designers and you absolutely do not need a new dress. But I had that inclination that like, oh, it's my book party. I need a new dress. That's what the conditioning is. And so being able to stop yourself and be like, oh, what am I doing? That's great, you know, but I just want to 
I never want to sit from a perch of judgment and be like, I'm so much better than everyone else. No, this will be a lifelong battle for me as well. Yeah, and, and it's and it's really a learning curve because changing habits will will obviously take time, but you'll see benefit also in your wallet and how much money you have at the end of the month. And you talk about savings for the items you want to purchase uh, mm -hmm. instead of you know putting on your credit card or using this like buy now pay later but now every time you go on a retailer website you have the option to pay in three times pay in four times so basically buy today the things you, you you don't afford i mean how do you save like you know what's what's your motivations what you, you know your tips so i think part of what changed the way i viewed money was going like as a someone in my twenties and being like, I'm going to learn how to dance. I'm going to take ballet and I'm going to become a really good ballet dancer because I had to pay for that myself. And it, ballet is not a poor kid sport. It isn't like, I think the ballet world needs to be realistic about the barrier for entry there. And because of that, like I wasn't able to dance as a kid, but I always wanted to. So I decided that when I was 24, I would just start. And I've been dancing now for 15 years, a little more, but I had to budget for that myself because I'm an adult. So I can't be like mom, dad <laughs> for my ballet classes. And what I realized was that like, I could either do one thing or the other. I could either go out drinking multiple times a week, or I could go to ballet multiple times a week, but I couldn't do both. And I had to be like, Hmm, alcohol doesn't actually agree with me that much. Like If I go out for a drink, you'll never see me drink more than three drinks because the fourth one usually ends in sick. And so, and it's only gotten worse as I've gotten older. And Same so here. as, <laughs> yeah. So as a person in my twenties, I was like, you are not actually a drinker. So maybe stop doing that. Like you don't need to go out and spend money in an, an environment that you don't actually like that much. You're not really, I didn't date much when I lived in the DC area because I'm not anyone's cup of tea. So it's just like, you know what? Maybe I'm just not going to do this anymore. Maybe I'll just go to ballet instead and it will make me really happy because that's what I've always wanted to do. And so I did. So I had to sort of shift my priorities and be like, okay, I'm not going to be the person that's going to be like out every night at like the social gatherings, but I will be the person that goes to ballet three times a week. And I think finding my joy in something that wasn't material items helped to sort of wean me from fast fashion, uh, you know, because it was like, this actually brings me joy more than getting a new dress that I don't need does. It feels great. It feels exuberant. It feels That, that dopamine kick that you get after a class, especially when your teacher compliments you and you have to like <laughs> not beam and be like, you know what I mean? But you want to. And then you get out of class and you're like, yes, that is, yes, that is, that is the joy. And so finding my joy in places that didn't involve consumption of material items was like a super big part of that journey for me. And it was, yeah, it was, um, It was kind of a beautiful journey in a way, but then also moving, like moving to the UK from the US. I remember saying to myself, I will never acquire as many material possessions as I currently own ever again. Because by that point, by the time I met my partner, I kind of knew, you know, about everything that I talk about in the book. The fact that like we're producing, the world is producing too much stuff. We're not using all of it. And a lot of it is getting dumped in the global South where it creates ecological crisis. I knew all this stuff. So 
when I got ready to move over here, I was not going to be the person that was like, I couldn't take it all with me. I had an adult, you know, house full of stuff. And I, I kind of was like, right, I can't take this all with me. There's just no way it won't fit in his flat. So I've got to like decrease and I had to thoughtfully do that. And it took me well over a year and I'm still there. Like when I go home at Christmas to see my parents, I always go through like a drawer of stuff, basically like at every trip. And then like I arrive with an empty suitcase and I bring back the things that I want to bring. It's the world's slowest move, but that was how I had to do it thoughtfully. You can either bag up everything, dump it on a charity shop, but you know, that's a part of the problem. Or you can go through all of your clothing and thoughtfully decrease and go, okay, this doesn't fit me anymore, but it would fit so-and-so. I'll ask if they want it. I'll put up a photo album of stuff on Facebook and tell people free for friends, just pay the shipping, you know? So going through that thoughtful decreasing of all of my life's possessions, I think really, really helped me to sort of think about these things and be really cautious about them. Like now, if I see something at a store and I'm thinking I'm going to get it, I always ask myself, but would you move it to another country? <laughs> because if you wouldn't, it needs to stay in the store. And it's also giving um, a lot more value uh, to, to what you already have, because usually yeah. we look at our wardrobe and we're like, yeah, that's a bunch of stuff and I don't wear this and stuff. And actually, for me, in the book, what was really important is, is what you say, I mean, actually about giving stuff and charity shop. And I think for a lot of people, it's like, yeah, but, you know, I gave stuff to charity and buying new stuff, but I always give and stuff. But the reality is that only, I think, 20% of the clothes um, are yeah. actually sold in charity shop and the rest is sent back. And then 20%. And so the other 80% either gets landfilled or it gets packed on a pallet and shipped to the global south. And ends up in countries like Ghana, Rwanda, and Kenya, where it creates an ecological disaster because those countries cannot sell the amount of clothing that is being dumped on them. Okay. And Ghana and Cantamonto, they receive 15 million items of clothing a week, a week, you know, and the population of Ghana isn't that big if we're, if we're honest. So like, we are essentially dumping our crap on these countries and feeling like charitable and good about it, but yeah. it's actually a horrible, horrible system. I mean, I wouldn't say that, you know, it's, it's all terrible, but it's become horrible because of fast fashion. Once upon a time, the clothing that ended up in those parts of the world had value, but because we have watered down the product And, and this is also the same for our charity shops. People complain all the time. Oh, my charity shop sucks now. It's really gentrified. Yeah, but... And I'm like, your charity shop does not suck because your neighbor opened a Depop shop. It sucks because it's full of fast fashion and no one wants that crap. You know, so like fast fashion is a, it's really ruining a lot of things. It is. And, and. I mean, there's so many ways that you can recycle your clothes, but it's taking care of them, you know, mending them, repairing yeah. them, recycling, selling, renting them. Finding, I mean, finding new friends to give them to. You know, you've got a bunch of friends and you all have kids and you make sure that everything circulates through the kids. That's that's perfect. Yeah. 
And also buying something new for me, it's like, okay, I'm going to go on eBay and try to find this thing. And yes. 99% of the time you find it. And I think you talk about that in the book that you cheaper. have your alerts also on eBay. Well, that was when I first began to like realize that like we were really overproducing everything. So I don't know if you remember like in the early 2000s when like everyone was into like the designer denim, it would change like every month. It would be like, this is a designer denim brand to have. And like those jeans would set you back like $200. Like they were not cheap. And I wanted to participate, but I was a college student and I I worked, but I was not going to be spending $200 on a pair of jeans. And so I um, went on eBay one day and I just remember like just typing in a few things. And I was surprised by the amount of jeans that popped up in my size. And that was the start of me shopping for things on eBay. I think the first clothing item I got on eBay was like the year 2000. For a moment, everybody was wearing like BCBG loafers. Those were like the ones and I wanted them so badly, but BCBG was not within my pocketbook. And I found a pair on eBay for like $30. It was like, ka-ching. So yeah. Yeah. eBay, Vinted, Depop, you know, Vestia Collective, if you want yes, more high-end, they're sure. all really good. Yeah. And, and you find the stuff. If we just go back a little bit to, you know, fast fashion and now just on the marketing side, you see all these brands who are doing, you know, pretty bad stuff to the planet, to the population, who are now telling you, that's okay, we've changed everything. And now we are sourcing from, you know, sort of like bio and eco and, you know, cotton and we pay our workers. So greenwashing, greenwashing, greenwashing. What, you know, how do we recognize the, the truth? The first thing I say is when you ask them about paying the workers, there's always a bit of a song and dance, which alludes to there's no way we can guarantee that we are paying all of our workers. Like they'll make it, they'll give you the impression that they're trying, yada, 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 but there's just no way that they, they always, it always comes down to, we cannot guarantee that all of our workers are paid, which that is the first thing. If you run a business and you cannot pay your workers, you don't deserve to have a business. That is really, I think that's, I think we can all agree on that, right? Like exploiting people is kind of not good. And if you ask any of these brands, they'll give you like the little like song and dance, song and dance. But at the end of the day, they're like, no, we cannot guarantee that we're paying all of our workers. They always slide that in really quickly. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is all the like sustainable crap that you're hearing about Even if they roll out like this diffusion line that they're doing this and that for, generally those items account for 0.0001% of their total output as a brand. So it's essentially a drop in the bucket. Like imagine you've got this bucket of mud and water and then you have this dropper with like pure water and you just put it in. Does it magically make the whole bucket clean? No, it doesn't. You're not going to drink from it. (laughs) Yeah, you're not going to drink from it. So that's that's what they're doing. They're like, oh, well, we're doing this one small thing and therefore we're going to shout about it and spend all of our marketing money on amplifying it to make you think that we're doing a lot. But in actuality, the vast majority of our brand is unsustainable completely, you know, but we're not going to shout about it, you know, so... People need to realize that 
the entire model of fast fashion is unsustainable. The way these brands operate day to day is unsustainable and changing out your fabric and your sourcing doesn't change that. If they want to change that, they need to drastically scale back. They need to make fewer items. They need to make better items and they need to pay people money that is good money. That is the brand that changes the game. But nobody seems to want to be present for that conversation. So how do we hold fast fashion companies and those in, in power to, to account? I mean, you, you give a few, I mean, very like, you know, pragmatic like tips um, in the book of, you know, using your, your voice. You're, yeah. you're never too small to actually say something and we, and we should all have a voice. You are. And, and if enough of us like stay on top of a brand that does something bad in the news, eventually they do have to talk about it. Like if they get a certain amount of complaints about something, Sometimes that complaint has to be addressed in a shareholder meeting because it's important for the shareholders to understand what people are saying about the brand. And so this idea of like talking about like social media and being like, oh, you're just a keyboard warrior. The people that say that are always the people that aren't doing jack shit, like seriously. Watching. Um, yeah, they're watching <laughs> and, and judging, but they're not doing anything. But if you actually are interested in changing this game, that's one way that you can totally do it by just, you know, jumping in the conversation when it's hard or when a company lies about something or when another disaster inevitably happens because it doesn't seem like the system is self-correcting. And you recognize that like a brand that you know was connected to that disaster. And here's how you know that they're not ever addressing it in a genuine way because Whenever it's discovered that a brand was connected to a disaster, and generally they do it by finding like the brand's tags, like in Rana Plaza, if you go to the corporate responsibility page, there's never anything about the disaster they're connected to, ever. And that's because they don't want to address it. Often when, you know, mentioned when the press, you know, tries to reach out for comment, there's no comment given. But then if you go to their corporate responsibility page, there's like a stock image photo of a smiling South Asian woman. And then they're like, yeah, we built a well in this town. And my friend, Joe Lawrence, cracked me up because she was like, yeah, but they don't mention that they had to build the well because the water is now undrinkable because of the factory runoff. And I'm like, oh my goodness, you're so right. Like, I didn't even think about it that way. Like, we give them points for doing things that frankly... These countries are underdeveloped because of businesses like theirs. And it's like, oh, that's so grim. But you're right. Like building a well in a city in a place that doesn't have clean drinking water is because the work that you're doing isn't enough for humans to actually change these systems on their own. And you roll it out as like, give us points for doing something good, but horrific. Just ghastly stuff. But the other thing I tell people is like, if you are the person like me, take your money away. Stop buying into the system. If you, we do this thing, another thing we do in our society where we like really normalize like buying exploitative clothing. Like when a celebrity wears something from the high street, yeah. the, the news is always like, oh, they're just like you. Look at her. She's so salt of the earth. And I'm like, She's not just like you. She lives in a house that costs like 12 million pounds. And like, 
you know, she's just like, just say she's okay with buying exploitative clothing, even though she doesn't have to. That's what that's about. But it's not being one with the people to buy exploitative clothing. Like no one should have to buy clothing made under certain measures, but that's not the reality of the world we live in. But if anyone can afford not to do it, it's the celebs. Yeah. And, and you were talking earlier also about, uh, you know, having these goodie bags and, you know, all the free stuff that you get from companies and conferences and stuff. And to be honest, this, this makes me sick. Like I come back with, I mean, normally I refuse these bags or I don't like to be sent any products, but I'm like, why are we doing this? You know? Yeah. And one thing that my friend Liz Ricketts of the Aura Foundation, which operates out of Cantamonto, tells me is that 25% of the clothing that gets dumped in Ghana is free t-shirts. And this doesn't resell well either. So Free t-shirts do not resell at all. Nobody wants them. They're waste products. And so one small thing that people can do if you're interested in changing the game is talk to your organization or your job or your school. We don't have to give out t-shirts for everything. There's nothing wrong wearing like a sweatshirt with your alma mater on it. But a t-shirt because of an event or a party, that's the stuff that needs to stop. That you're never going to wear, basically. That you're never going to wear again. Aja, thank you so much. I wanted to ask you finally, how can we become more of a citizen and less of a consumer? So we, you talked about that, but I, I love this quote that, that you have in the book. And for me, that makes a lot of sense. And I went to bed last night, I finished your book and I was like, my God, this is, you know, such a big shift, but it's so important. And, you know, and, and, and these are habits at home on a daily basis. You're not here to change the world. Oh, they're everywhere. They're in our friendships. They're in challenge the culture of consumerism, challenge how you hang out with your friends, you know, challenge the notion of when you buy, set a limit for yourself and say, I'm going to buy 30 items this year. That's it. When I'm done, I'm done and do that. But challenge this system at whatever intersection you can operate from, because obviously not everyone's going to be able to like quit fast fashion tomorrow. But I think a good amount of us probably can, if you're listening to this podcast, not everyone is going to be able to find sustainable designers in their size. Okay. Well, you know, make sure that like we're all repairing our clothing and taking care of our clothing, you know, so it lasts a long time, even if it's not sustainable. I mean, the shirt I'm wearing right now is old fast fashion. I tell people, If you have the fast fashion, keep it and it still fits, although this just barely fits, to be honest, it, it was a real struggle to get in it, still wear it because just going, oh, I can't wear this anymore. I don't want to be seen in this anymore. That's the problem. Like just dumping it on another person and making it someone else's problem. That is still the problem. So if you still have fast fashion garments in your wardrobe, wear it, you know, wear it, treat it well, give it a long life. And then when it's done, hopefully we'll challenge our government to have some recycling plans in place because currently only 1% of our clothing textile waste gets recycled. So that's another thing that you can do if you are at a place where you want to get involved on a legislation level, reaching out to your elected officials and asking them about having more clothing recycling options. That's a great place. It'd be even better if we reached out to them and told them to make the big brands pay for it since it's their problem, you know, but there's a lot of stuff that we can all do at our different intersections. And it's about finding which one is yours and, and getting in the game. But if you do anything at all, 
please stop buying so much clothing. Thanks, Sergio. I have three quick fire questions for you that we ask all our guests. What is the best financial decision you ever made? To stop buying fast fashion. And what is the worst financial decision you ever made? To keep buying fast fashion. <laughs> what are the things you spend the most money on at the moment? It's tough because we've been in lockdown. So we have gone extremely frugal. And to be honest, I think a year in lockdown has really gotten us reevaluating, like, what do we actually need to spend money on? So I would argue the thing I spend the most amount of money on right now is books. I buy books because I love them. They bring me joy. I pass them on to friends. You know, it definitely helps my platform to be better. So yes, I do spend on books. And talking about books, do you have a favorite book that you can recommend? Ooh, um, I don't want to be cheeky and say my own. So we'll talk about, we'll think, give you own. Let, <laughs> for me, sure. let me think, what did I, I am currently reading Naomi Klein's No Logo and I highly recommend everyone read that one. It's eye-opening. Like the, she, Naomi Klein wrote the prototype and paved the way for yeah. me to write Consumed. And so I would say everyone read Naomi Klein. It's uh, No Logo is She, she predicted all this and it's quite scary how much of a coal mine canary she was for these systems. It's such a good book. Aja, consumed the need for collective change, colonialism, climate change and consumerism. I think everyone should read this, this book. We also... On the day of publication of the podcast, we're doing a little giveaway on our, on our platform for you, for a friend. You, but you should definitely buy this book, gift it to someone. Aja, we can find you on Twitter at Aja Says Hello, on Instagram, Aja Barber. And of course, there's your book. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to share, recommend or to, you know, to say today? I would just say if you feel overwhelmed after you read the book, And you're thinking, oh, what do I do? Take a breath, stop and do nothing. Like just, just taking a breath from shopping is a great way to engage in this. And then once you take that little breath, then you sort of start to get more into the conversation a different way. But if you feel like really freaked out or overwhelmed because it is a lot of information, just slow down. And that can look like being still and doing nothing for a minute. And that's all right as well. Thank you so much, Aja. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Wallet today. Please share with a friend and subscribe or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, we have a new format coming out. So I need you to send me your proud money moments, your questions and comments via hotline at emily at Speak to you next week.